0: This podcast is supported by the Rebecca Vassy Trust, a UK-based charity which promotes the art of narrative photography through granting bursary awards to up-and-coming photographers and funding public education projects like this one. This podcast has full editorial independence and the views expressed in the series are not necessarily those of the Trust. Welcome to season two of the Photoethics Podcast, I'm your host, Savannah Dodd, and I'm the founder of the Photography Ethics Center. Each week I'll be talking with an accomplished photographer about the ethics of their practice. Today in episode number 10, we'll be talking with Erin Turner about abstraction and identity. Aaron Turner is a photographer and educator currently based in Arkansas, where he founded the Center for Photographers of Colour at the University of Arkansas School of Art. He uses photography to pursue personal projects of people of colour in two main areas of the US, the Arkansas and Mississippi Deltas. Aaron also uses the camera to create still life studies on topics of race, history, blackness as material, and the role of the black artist. Aaron received his MA from Ohio University and an MFA from the Mason Gross School of the Arts, Rutgers University. He was a 2018 lightwork artist in residence at Syracuse University, a 2019 InFoco Photography Fellow, a 2020 Visual Studies Workshop Project Space AIR, and a 2020 Artist 360 Mid-American Arts Alliance grant recipient. wonder, could we start by you just telling me a little bit about the kind of work that you do?
1: So for me right now, the two most relevant bodies of work that I'm working on is one called Yesterday Once More. And that series deals with family, home, place, my identity through those things. Also, this idea of a transformative process in terms of How things change around you, how that affects you as a person, how that affects the people around you, and also the idea of time. If you know about William Christianberry's practice, how he would return to places, um, you know, in the 70s and then back in the 80s and then he'll come back in the 90s. So that's kind of how I document my family in the Arkansas Delta under this project titled Yesterday Once More. I had been living in grew up grew up in Arkansas, spent a little time in Memphis, Tennessee. And then, you know, through my undergraduate years, I knew I wanted to study photojournalism. So I ended up going to Ohio. And make a long story short, it was a culture shock. And out of this class, I got to go back home for 10 days. And that's how yesterday once more started. It was a class. That we had to find the sources, map out this plan, kind of map out all our days, and it had to be approved by a professor. And then you went back home ten days in the middle of the semester, and then you came back, put together a magazine, wrote the article, all that kind of stuff. So, but yesterday once more is it, at its core is about how photography deals with time. How does the person? next you change years at a time and you know one example is you know i have photos of my brother you know before he got married at his wedding after his wedding when he started to have children and as his children get older so those are the types of things i'm interested in under yesterday once more and it's all about migration too because you know i'm the only one in my family that lives in arkansas currently Everyone else, you know, lives in places like Virginia and Texas and Missouri and out west. So, you know, the environment that I grew up in, everyone was kind of like, you need to leave Arkansas. And I did for a while. I lived in New Jersey, Ohio, New York. And then I found myself back here. And so that's one project. And then the other project that I developed when I went to get my MFA at Rutgers is called Black Alchemy. And to make another long story short about how I developed that project, and it's still ongoing is, it's about the role of the black artists in the studio. It also speaks to art history. It speaks to other artists contemporarily and from the past. And it also is attempting to address the average person who does not study art, who does not study photography. I try to pick elements visually that can signify to people, no matter what their educational background is, we can still have a conversation about what's visually in front of us. And then also from like a complex standpoint, Black alchemy is about this decision. When is it appropriate to deem oneself a Black artist or just an artist, right? And I found several examples of that through reading artists' interviews and just looking at different genres of art, looking at different time periods of art, the Black arts movement, the Harlem Renaissance, like all this stuff all the way up until today. And that Black Alchemy Project has to deal a lot with, you know, abstract painting, abstract photography, abstraction overall, right? Because abstraction has this element to it that kind of allows you to operate ambiguously if you choose to do so and then there's also this perception of abstraction to be free from representation but that's true and not true at the same time if you look at my work in black alchemy there's several representational elements there is sometimes i find it hard to get away from because i'm trying to talk about the past and the present to imagine the future. I'm trying to create future aesthetics. I'm trying to speak to artists to come. I'm trying to speak to artists that are practicing alongside me. And I'm also trying to speak to peers, specifically Black painters who were painting in the late 1960s and then the early 1970s and who were butting up against what I mentioned earlier, the Black arts movement on one side of their practice, they were deemed by the fellow black artists as not contributing to the cause again, because their work was kind of in that realm of geometric abstraction, right? And so you don't see moments of like what we call now, black joy and also kind of related to documentary photography, what people will refer to poverty porn, Like, right? You're not painting an image or depicting an image of Black dignity, you're painting triangles and squares and circles, right? So you're not down for the cause. And then on the other side, these artists, like a Frank Bowling, like a Howardena Pendel, trying to get their foot in the door in the predominantly white art market at that time, were not accepted on that side either. And if you Google any one of those names now, Howardina Pindell, Frank Bowling, I mean, it's an article about Frank Bowling, like four or five articles about him every month. And he is of African descent, but is from London, I believe. And, you know, had his first show in New York recently, like within the last 10 years and just went through this whole struggle of trying to get his work out there. And he took a lot of things under his own wing or under this guy. Eyes of like self-determination, curating shows of fellow Black abstract artists working in sculpture and painting and things like that. So that's kind of what Black alchemy is about before I go on too long about it. <laughs> so, yeah.
0: No, that's really, really interesting. And it's so relevant, I think, especially when you're talking about representation and how abstraction can on one hand, be free from it. On the other hand, still invoke like different systems of representation, but then also can be maybe at fault for not engaging in representation in some ways. I think that that's just a really interesting perspective on that. And I guess, yeah. I wonder, can you maybe unpack that a little bit about how you see that in your practice? Because I feel like you've given us sort of different perspectives on it, but I'd like to maybe hear about what that means in terms of the ethics of your practice and to what extent representation? Do you know what I'm sort of getting at? That wasn't a very well-articulated question. Yeah,
1: (laughs) I think how I would answer that is this other side of that drives Black alchemy. Like if you've ever read the book by Nella Larson called Passing, or if you've ever seen a film called The Imitation of Light, the book and then the movie is about it's about colorism. It's about skin tone and perception, right? Passing in terms of racial passing is having skin complexion and features that are closer to being white, but you are technically or still identify as a person of African descent or any other type of person of color, uh, right? Like Latinx or anything like that. But both dilemmas in the books, in the book, and then in the movie is kind of talking about it's this choice like, do you live as an African American or as a person of African descent or as a person of color, or do you pass for white, right? And then we know during days of segregation, you know, those things were pivotal to like the career path you had. One instance in work that I've made about in Black Alchemy Volume 3 is the Johnston family who lived in Keene, New Hampshire. And the dad wanted to be a doctor, but he kept checking off that he was a person of color or that he was black on these applications. And, of course, he didn't get the medical internship he needed after medical school to become a doctor. Right. And so he started passing for white, did it for years. His kids didn't even know that they were black. They told their kids that they were white and all this kind of thing. And then he finally got to the point after he became a doctor and all this kind of stuff that he told the community of Keene, New Hampshire. Hey, I'm black. I'm passing for white. Basically, it, it made a lot of headlines at the time. And The reaction that he expected from the community was not, you know, they were kind of embraced. For the most part, you know, it's a whole movie about that, too. I can't remember the name of that movie, but there was a movie made about that. I remember coming across an article about that in the L.A. Times. So I go all the way to that extreme. As an example, to use it as a metaphor for abstraction, right, when a black artist uses abstraction and sort of expresses that thought of I'm trying to be an artist, I'm trying to add to the canon. Where I'm trying to advance this practice of abstraction, what the perception could be is that they're trying to pass as a white artist. But if you really look into the work and the symbols and the choices that people use in their work, like Howardena Pindell, for example, and why she uses the circle, I encourage everyone to look that up. It's pretty fascinating. It comes from a place of her identity in her childhood She's not an artist trying to pass for white. She actually was one of the, you know, early on in her practice, surveyed institutions about their biases and lack of people of color, being in collections and being shown different places and stuff like that. So we can have a whole episode just talking about this thing alone. But I go into history of art and I go into just history like those books, you know, Nella Larson Passing and that movie, imitation of light, because there's these examples about colorism, right? These perceptions that people make outside of art. And then even within art, I think the closest example is when Meghan Markel and Prince Harry, they were talking about some of the family members of the royal family maybe asking about, oh, what is the skin tone of the baby going to be like when it comes out, right? And that still even today being some type of way that determines like the quality of life that you have to some extent is the best way that I can explain it. So these things are like all around us. So that's how I would kind of deal with representation in my work. And of course I deal with like other figures, like historical civil rights figures like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, because I feel like those histories have not been dealt with enough. So I kind of try to inject those into my images so we could have, so I can have conversations with my peers, so I can have conversations with individuals who live through the civil rights movement. And how do we get to these movements that are happening today? For me, it's obvious that we haven't dealt with those things fully, or we wouldn't have these issues that we have today. That's kind of how I come at it as an artist, trying to invoke conversations.
0: And you Described that you started off with a degree in documentary photography. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: How did you move? Was it quite a natural movement from documentary into working more abstractly? Or how did you find that path?
1: You know, at first it was pretty jolting. You know, I was kind of had this moment where it's like, based on the things that I was interested in, basically was just trying to explain about what I do in black alchemy. I knew that I could not express those ideas by embedding myself into a community or working at a daily newspaper, stuff like that. Like I knew I had to figure out some other way to express these internal interests that I had. So during my time at Ohio university, I was like full on committed. When I leave this place, I'm going to be a photojournalist. And I was almost there. Right. At the time you know, when you were studying photojournalism, things that sort of propelled your career was like getting that six month internship, getting that year long internship. And I had gotten this really good six month internship at this daily paper in Indiana. But at that same time, I had gotten a full rise scholarship to study art for free at Rutgers. And I had applied to Rutgers because I had became aware of the work of Latoya Ruby Frazier. And this was not too far, not too long after I had already started yesterday once more. Found out about an artist like Latoya Ruby using documentary photography, but showing up in the pictures themselves, documenting their family, documenting their community that they grew up in. And I was like, wow, OK, what I'm doing is legitimate because I'm seeing someone else do it and you know, the feedback that I got about documenting my own community and documenting my family was that it was not serious journalism. It was not serious work, right? It wasn't taken seriously until you have a person like a Latoya Ruth at least for me as an individual, I see myself in her, right? In terms of like having the wherewithal and the bravery to sort of do those things. And so I saw that she worked at Rutgers. I said, I want to work with her, but Around that time, her project, Notion of Family, took off, and she ended up taking a job at SAIC, where she still is now in Chicago. And so I still ended up going to Rutgers and studying. I left there with painting and painters being my main influence, not photographers anymore. But I love photo history. I love looking at it. I love seeing what's missing from it, all those kind of things. So and as I look back on all that now, the project that I described yesterday once more and Black Alchemy and all the other stuff on my website, it's really one body of work because it's coming from self-awareness and self-interest that I have in terms of like, okay, I want to talk about this thing, but it actually, you know, each project leads to the next and they talk back and forth to one another. And so that's just kind of how I operate. I stop paying attention to the labels of an artist or the labels of a photojournalist and just start thinking about things in terms of like being a creative or being a storyteller. I think, you know, even a graphic designer, even a art director, even a painter, even a sculptor, even a photojournalist, we're all trying to tell a narrative. We're all trying to tell a story and we're trying to figure out the best way to do that. So that's kind of how I think about it now as I look back on The decisions that I made. Mm
0: -hmm. I think that's really interesting what you said about, you know, doing more maybe reflexive work was not viewed as legitimate. And I feel like a trend that I've seen a lot with the people that I've spoken with over the past year has really been that actually turning in is becoming much more comfortable and much more accepted and in many cases, much more important work. I don't know if that resonates with you and what you're saying.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that just made me think about the work of Matt Eich and the work that he does documenting his family, his extended and immediate family. And that was influential on what I did as an artist um, or a photographer as well early on. And you know, of course, I mentioned Latoya Ruth And it is interesting how time changes things. Everybody is documenting their family now. And for me, I get really excited about that because it allows me to draw more parallels to think about things more universally. You have all these photographers from different backgrounds all over the world, domestically here in the United States documenting their family people documenting their loved ones things like mental illness but from a place of empathy and you know that one to one ratio of like documenting the self like yourself and how you as an individual interact with mental illness or people around you so things like that people are becoming more vulnerable it seems and more open to that type of idea and I think you know family and mental illness and things like that are these universal ways that we can you know sort of i don't know if, if if escape or move beyond identity only because we all we all have to deal with these things and it and i think it it sort of forces us or helps us realize that you know to move beyond skin tone and all this kind of stuff to see how we are more alike than different.
0: If photographers around the world are spending more time being more vulnerable and reflexive and sharing their own personal experiences, you said that that sort of breaks down a lot of the maybe barriers of identity and it also maybe promotes a lot more empathy. And I guess I wonder if there's a connection there to what you said earlier about, you know, how photographers choose to identify as artists or as Black artists if they are from the Black community.
1: Yes. And it's a complicated issue because it's such an individual idea. And then you have, you're right, you can't really tell anyone how to identify or how to describe themselves. Even when we get into topics like that coincide with identity, Or like expand identity beyond race, you can start talking about gender, uh, which falls under passing as well. That's another conversation. I deal with that in my work as well. But some artists that I interact with will deliberately tell you, I don't want to be labeled. I don't want to be called a black artist or I don't want to be called an artist of color. And then some people will fully embrace that. So I'm really interested in that space of like either or definitively defining oneself or not wanting to be defined because it's nothing new. Those artists that I were talking about, those abstract painters and artists that I was talking about in the late 1960s and early 1970s are still making now, right? Despite all the stuff that they faced from peers that were like them in identity and then the predominantly white art world that would not accept them. So it's like, it's all these different scenarios that you can come at it. And then I think, you know, in my pursuit of trying to come at things from a historical standpoint, with doing the things that I do with photographers of color, trying to bring more exposure to artists of color, photographers of color, to correct and subvert that historical narrative, I also have to step back and recognize that, you know, people are people. Right. And they have the right to sort of identify themselves and, you know, acknowledge identity in different ways. It's just complex. It's just not one answer, but I love approaching it from both sides. I think an artist has the right to just be an artist. And I also think people have the right to attach their identity to their role as an artist. And I don't know if slippery slope is the right word to sort of categorize that as, but that's why I embrace abstraction, because it allows you to directly address things non-representationally. But you can also be abstract in metaphor or through the use of representational things. But the more I do this work, the more I discover likenesses more than things that sort of separate us.
0: Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I feel like it also, though, reminds me of sort of a very industry based problem as well with photographers of color who maybe don't want to attach that label to their work, but who become sought out specifically for work about communities of color and how I think that that has happened a lot in the past year. And I don't know, it just sort of speaks, I think, to that responsibility of photo editors and commissioners and other people to really approach all photographers with that individuality and that recognition that, you know, how do they identify themselves and where is that situated? Does that make sense? Because I feel like it sort of can very quickly become that thing that like, oh, right, well, it's great to get a photographer of color involved in this thing. But that might be very detrimental and actually really counterproductive.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I was living in New York and, you know, working as a technical director at a small liberal arts college, trying to make work, trying to make a living, right? That was my day job. But I can count on one hand the amount of opportunities that I got to be a freelancer. And so I kind of had to pivot my life away from the dependency of freelance work. Based on my individual circumstances, you know, I had to make it. I had to make a living. I couldn't depend on freelance work. And I through that, I begin to focus on other things that is kind of related to my desire to be a photo editor when I left Ohio University, which is kind of why I try to bring awareness to other people's work. Because I felt like as an individual through photographers of color, I was trying to bring awareness to people's work, to other photographers of color and to people outside of that world. Just sort of say, hey, look at this. This person is making this work here. This person is making this work there. So in a way, I was trying to play the role of, of a photo editor, but, you know, have never operated it in the capacity of an official photo editor. But yeah, now I know this is probably true for a lot of photographers after what happened with George Floyd in Minnesota and how people sort of had this, I don't even know what you would call it. Because there's so many things that have happened since. But now all of a sudden, Black photographers are sought after globally to sort of go into communities and make the work when people have been trying to say, you should have been sending us there in the first place all these other years ago. And it's just so many ways. It's just so many histories that you can kind of dive through. And I mean, it's evident in a book. If you look at Dr. Deborah Willis's book, Reflections in Black Photographers, 1839 to the present. And that book was published in like, I don't know if it was the year 2000 or 2010, somewhere in between those. It was like to write a book like that all those years ago and to have the Black presence in photography almost to the year of its invention, or at least the year that it came to the United States, all the way to the present. And then for that not to be in a photo history class. Right. I didn't find out about this book until I was leaving Ohio University. So two or three years post my undergraduate education in photo and journalism and all this other stuff. These are the, you know, the factual, undeniable things that you have to like face, that we have to face as an industry. Right. I always think about that book Deborah Willis wrote because the fact that she had to just write this whole separate history that was not validated or recognized by these mainstream photo historical narratives. That says a lot. And it still says a lot to this day, which is why you have all of these collectives and movements and podcasts. Like it's so necessary because it was overlooked for all these years. And so you have to take that. And I think now there's more room even through those things where we can come together and have more shared universal experiences through those discoveries.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's really useful. And I guess I'm thinking also about, you know, the work that you've done with your own family. I think that this is a particular area of interest for me personally, because I did a project on my grandfather's experience of dementia. And obviously, you know, it's one of those things in retrospect, obviously, There are a lot of complicated ethical questions to face with that work and to work through. And I do think that there is something very unique about working so close to home and how we negotiate the ethics of our practice. And I guess, you know, especially with your practice of doing it over such a long period of time, I was wondering if you could maybe share your experience of sort of navigating that ethical terrain.
1: Yeah. And and to backtrack a little bit, I always, I'm inspired by multiple things. And one of the things that I didn't mention about yesterday once more was looking for images about the Arkansas Delta in the Library of Congress archive and seeing Dorothea Lange was there and made images. Finding out about Eugene Richard's work, the two books that he has published, photographing in the Arkansas Delta. I'm flipping through the books and I'm seeing Mary in Arkansas. West Memphis, Arkansas, the town that I grew up in. I'm seeing Earl, Arkansas. That's where my great grandmother lives. That's where we always go to have like family gatherings. And, you know, I see all my second cousins and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, really? People were there documenting these places back in the late 60s, early 70s. And then Eugene Richards went back again in 2010, 2011, National Geographic, right? So I'm aware of people occupying these spaces with a camera. And I'm like, I have these skills. I'm interested in documenting my family. I know about this work from Victoria Frazier; She's documenting her family. I'm seeing other photographers in my age document their family. I want to do it too, because I think it's meaningful. Also, at that time period, I had gotten to a point, maybe ethically, where I didn't feel comfortable documenting other people's stories. I felt more comfortable documenting my own family's story. I had to do that before I could even start to approach other people because I had to find out my own story to better tell other people's stories. But yeah, I think documenting the family is important. Another reason why I was doing that is because I was from the Arkansas Delta. I was a Black male and I had not seen. Other black men photographing in the Arkansas Delta, so I also came in it from that perspective, also from the perspective of like families passing down oral history. All the stories that I heard growing up did not have photos attached to them, so I started thinking about my nieces and nephews, the cousins who are like ten and fifteen years younger than me were first cousins, but you know people are born at different times, but you know they're like basically a whole different generation, but I wanted to make pictures of my family for my family and that I still do that to this day. But then I share with other people to see if there are these universal experiences and conversations that we can have. Yeah, we come from different backgrounds, but I think we can all talk about family in some shape, form or fashion, right? There's some way that you're going to interact with that or come through that. And to have a conversation from a visual standpoint or from a photographic standpoint, And to think about the family album and how that operates, like, I just think, you know, the possibilities are boundless when you come at it from that perspective. So that's a little bit about my experience and why I document my family. And also, you know, about the Great Migration, my family, and this is why I put in my bio that I document people of color in the Mississippi Deltas and Arkansas Deltas, because that's where my family is from. Both sides of my family from my mom and dad originate from Louisiana and then to two different areas of Mississippi. But then from Mississippi, they end up in the Arkansas Delta in kind of two different areas, like Helena, West Helena. And then like the place that I was talking about, I grew up West Memphis, Arkansas. And then, you know, my parents meet in high school as a result of that. You know, they grew up knowing each other's families and all this kind of stuff. My grandmother, who passed away when I was one, you know, she taught my aunts and uncles from both sides of my family because she was there was one high school in the town. She was known as being like this amazing English teacher, but (laughs) wouldn't hesitate to give you an F if you didn't do your work. Right. And then, you know, my granddad was a pastor, but also like a lawyer and a judge in the community. So a lot of people knew him and so, yeah. And then I get into, you know, the maiden names of both my grandmothers or that my mother's maiden name and how I'm related to people because of that. So it's just, I love that stuff because those are the conversations that I was privy to when I was five and six and seven and eight, you know, my granddad and my dad doing the family history all the way back to England. Being aware of that, walking around with knowledge like that, feeling that it was normal. But then, you know, in my late 20s and early 30s, knowing that not everyone carries around or is privy to that knowledge about their family. So there's certain responsibilities that come with that. And then there's also like this desire to like get other people to seek those things out. So it's just a bunch of layers to it. And it all kind of bleeds together.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I had a question about that as well, because you described that you take work for your family and then that's also work that you share. Yeah. And I think that really resonates with me in terms of the work that I did about dementia was that it was very much about my family. It was also therapeutic for me, but it also had the intention of like maybe being therapeutic for other people who are going through that in their families. But I think that sometimes... If you have family members who aren't artists, I think that that idea of sharing outside, you know, it's almost like airing your dirty laundry. It's like, you don't do that. You know, you don't put that out there. And there can be a bit of attention. But yeah, sorry, you wanted to jump in there.
1: Yeah, I do know photographers who run into that issue. I do know artists who run into that issue of like maybe your family doesn't want you to share certain images or all this kind of stuff. And I'm going to go back to that earlier question about, What happened after George Floyd, all this demand on photographers of color to sort of tell their own stories that now they have like are granted access to get these assignments or whatever. And there's a more complex way to even describe that. But just because I'm black doesn't mean that I just get all the rights and privileges of going into a black community and documenting. I still have to do my job as a journalist. I still have to gain people's trust. I still have to be ethical up to my standards. And then also, you know, that's what I have to do with my family. Like I don't just get to raise the camera up to my family. Right. They had to get comfortable with me doing those things. It just didn't happen overnight. You know, of course, it was easier with people like my mom and my dad, but you know, when it gets to like aunts and uncles and stuff, right. It all depends on the dynamic of the relationship I have with each individual And then also me acknowledging my power holding the camera and how those power dynamics happen as well. But yeah, there was one question you had, like, why do you photograph? What do you photograph? And, you know, I always describe, you know, on a really basic level for why I love doing photography and using photography in my practice is the way it feels. Like, I love the way it feels. And based on what I feel, you know, I hit the shutter. And that is healing, that is therapy in a way, it is a therapeutic practice. I always describe to people, like, I see in photographs, like, I'm able to look around a room, I'm able to go on a walk, I'm able to enter a space and see a photograph. Like, I think the potential to make an image is everywhere all the time. And even though I don't always take the photograph, like, I see it, I see in photographs, and I just can't imagine going through life without that. I couldn't imagine doing anything else than using a camera at the core of what I do as a person. So that's the way I describe because even those years that I described earlier where I couldn't get an assignment. I could have, I didn't really pursue freelance, but I never stopped pursuing making images because I enjoy making them. And I think to some extent, you know, we all have to recognize our value and be able to negotiate and know how to navigate, you know, making a living out of what we do. But on a certain level, we also have to be able to do it, you know, at our core without even being paid for it. Like there has to be some desire or else, you know, so many people would have laid the camera down so long ago and not even continue to make images. So I know it took a while before myself, I had to make the images for me And not with the desire to become famous or to be recognized by this or that and to get this award. Like, I really had to do it because I wanted to do it. And that's why I still pick up the camera now, because I like doing it. I like making images.
0: And if you had any advice, maybe for someone who is earlier, you know, just starting out and really has that drive to make images, but also maybe is feeling that their work isn't being recognized the way that they would hope. Do you have any advice maybe for negotiating that or not falling out of love with photography or working through that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the most important thing is community. You have to find some type of community. And it's like this, you know, stitching together something it's going to include people that mentor you it's going to include peers it's going to include people who don't even do what you do in terms of like genre or the discipline or how they make money right it's just like your community and you know sometimes family is a part of that sometimes close friends are a part of that and just be open to different ways of storytelling and embrace all things around you in terms of where you draw inspiration from like I talked about earlier, like. One of the main things that I love looking at and draw inspiration from now is painting. I just absolutely love it. And also go back in history and ask, why are things the way they are presently and sort of investigate those things. But also I would encourage people to look past labels.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: Be able to define yourself, be able to label yourself. Don't feel the pressure of or allow other people to label what it is that you do. If you want to be called an artist, that's what you should be called. If you want to be called a photographer, that's what you should be. If you want to be identified as a documentarian or documentary photographer, that's what you should, you know, operate as based on your own experiences. But don't let anyone define that for you. You know, do it based on your own life experiences and, you know, operate As you would want to. And if you think about, I think Gordon Parks is a good example. Gordon Parks was a filmmaker, a composer, he wrote music, could play by ear, made films, he wrote poetry, he wrote novels, he wrote autobiographies, and he made pictures, but he made documentary pictures, he did fashion photography, like just all these different things, he just seemed to be, he couldn't be categorized. I think you have a person like De Carava. These are some of my favorite photographers, which is why I'm mentioning them. But you got someone like Roy Carava who started out as a graphic designer and when he would leave work or as an illustrator, printmaker and a painter too, would leave work where he was an illustrator and, you know, use the time he had on the subway to make pictures, to perfect his craft at using the camera, right? It didn't matter that this day job that he was doing was as an illustrator or his background was in printmaking. He still had this desire to seek out using the camera. And all those other ways of making helped him, you know, develop his philosophies and compositions and his style of photography it all just kind of added up into the one thing and yeah those are two great examples and and there's photographers present day doing those same things you know I know photographers who do several different genres of photography or several different categories of photography but they also make drawings so it's all about what I said earlier being open to whatever it takes to tell the story. Yeah, that's how I would, would answer that
0: question. Yeah. And can you tell me, what does photography ethics mean to you?
1: Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's a principle I was raised with and still live by to this day. And It's not always easy to do that. It's not just as simple as saying that it's a different way when you like act out and live that. I think that's also tied into, I think being ethical is practicing empathy in the various ways that it's possible to do that. Put ourselves in other people's shoes, but also I think self awareness and all interactions with people, like being aware of the role that you play or different power dynamics or what you're trying to accomplish by interacting with people. When you make an image of someone, what you're taking, what they're giving, When someone allows you in in their space to spend time with them, you know, what they're giving up, what you're giving up, what they're taking, what you're taking. Maybe also like selflessness, going into something, figuring out how it can benefit someone other than ourselves. I think that can go a long way. And so I think that also ties into, you know, why are we picking up the camera in the first place? And Would we do it if we weren't paid for it? And you know, how everyone kind of comes to that that way of thinking or that understanding for themselves based on their life and decisions in their life. So that's what ethics is to me. And I'm thinking back to like preparing for this interview, I was thinking back to like all the scandals that have happened in this industry, whether it's someone photoshopping something and you know what I'm saying, unethically doing this or that and. All these conversations and developments and stories and narratives that have come to light around sexual harassment and power dynamics around that. I'm thinking about, you know, pursuing freelance photography, trying to get my foot in the door, and now understanding that all these things were happening simultaneously around me, right? That I think we're dealing with now. And probably would consider these unethical things that happen that are just now coming to the light. And it's just kind of sending the industry in like a tailspin and people are doing their best. Journalists are writing about it. People are calling it out on social media. People are dealing with it in their own ways. You know, the ethics around that is just. It's sort of mind boggling to think about all these unethical practices that went on for years and why the industry was the way that it is, why some things still remain the way that they have been always. You know, a quote from the painter Carrie James Marshall, he talks about finding a way through self-determination, determining the value of things yourself. If you think documenting your family is valuable, add the value to it yourself Self-publish, get the work out there yourself. Don't wait for a big publication to add authenticity to it. Don't wait for someone else to deem it valuable. Find value in it yourself. And I think that's very big for artists in general, but also specifically for artists of color in very particular ways. And that's happening. That's part of the reason why I started Photographers of Color. And while I still post links daily on the Twitter feed, that's where it originated, you know, back in 2014, 2013. And that's why I still post links every day. And if people notice, sometimes I post about painters and I post about all these other conversations that are happening, because, you know, I think as photographers, we have to, you know, move beyond, you know, what some people describe as photo land or photo or the photo world. I guess other things happening around us and we have to be aware of those things to to be more uh, effective at what it is that we do.
0: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Photo Ethics Podcast. The aim of this podcast is to share new insights about photography ethics with others. So if you heard something you liked, please share this podcast with someone who would appreciate it. The links to all things mentioned in this episode are available in the show notes at www.photoethics.org. Join me next week when we hear from Tamara Abdul Hadi on what we have seen. If you're enjoying this podcast, why don't you check out our online courses? We've developed a series of three online courses designed specifically for photojournalists and documentary photographers. We discuss questions like, how do we achieve accuracy in our photographs? What's the relationship between power and consent? And when, if ever, should we intervene? These online courses come with perks, like access to an online community group for discussion and Q&A opportunities with me, the course leader. Enroll today at www.photoethics.thinkific.com. Or go to www.photoethics.org and click online courses. This podcast was edited by Ellie Gascoigne.